Don't you just love it when you can confidently say that someone has your back? Hi, Dave Lee here, and that's the feeling I have with UCARE. Anytime I call them up with a Medicare question, I know without a doubt that a real person will answer, and they will work through my issues no matter how long it takes, and they won't hang up until I completely understand what's going on. Their people and customer service are second to none, and it's why UCARE has people-powered health plans. Don't hesitate to reach out to UCARE for help. Learn more at UCARE.org slash Medicare. This paid endorsement brought to you by UCARE. Today on my first concert, because Bob Dylan was looking for a uh, what they call a Joan Baez model of a of a smaller Martin guitar that records very well. Bob had had one, but it was stolen that summer. Mm. He'd, he'd written all the songs on that guitar, so he wanted a replacement when he was uh, making this record. And uh, so that's what David uh, Zimmerman asked Kevin Odegaard to do. He said, "Help me find this guitar." So he called the Podium Guitar Store in Dinkytown, knowing that Chris Weber would likely have something similar, and Chris did. But he said, um, it's on consignment, and I can't just let you have it. I have to bring it with me to this session. And at this point, Chris had pretty much figured out it was going to be a Bob Dylan session. <laughs> <laughs> Blood on the Tracks. Was it Dylan's best album? Well, it certainly ranks among the best albums. And there's a new book out by Rick Shefchik, not his first, and a musician uh, to go along with that. But Rick has written a new one on Blood on the Tracks. But he is a music guy, and we're going to chat with him. Pretty interesting today. Uh, a, a number of stories about his own musicianship and some of the books he's written. It's all brought to you by Minnesota Propane Association, by UCARE, by Aquarius Home Services, by the Chan Asin Dinner Theater and by StarBank.net. Dave Lee here. Great to see you again, Davide. It's been almost a month. I know. <laughs> it's been forever. Yeah, that's but right. Welcome back, Dave. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we took a detour to uh, France for a couple of weeks, and I had to get advice from Davide. Of course, hails from uh, Switzerland. Uh, yes. And uh, and I think you're going on a trip pretty soon yourself, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I am in uh, two weeks. So we wanted to get together and, and to get some more podcasts going here. And uh, we've had such a great time with this. But David, I introduced you earlier to a guy named Rick Shefchik, who's a great writer and a good friend. And I've known Rick for many years. And he's got a new book out. But Rick, before we get there, the title of the show is My First Concert. What was yours? It was the Beach Boys at the Duluth Arena Auditorium on August 13th, 1966. I was 14 years old. Um, and a lot of these details, um, I would probably be able to pull out anyway. But one of the great things about the Internet and, and a very popular band is you can go online now and basically search every concert that the Beatles ever played, the Beach Boys ever played, Bob Dylan ever played. And, and these were the three big artists of my growing up years. You know, I was a teenager all through the 60s, and uh, it was the Beach Boys, the Beatles, and Bob Dylan for me. I, I loved many other kinds of music, but uh, um, the Beach Boys were the first concert I ever went to. I went with my older brother, Mark. Uh, he was three years older than I was. And uh, this was almost payback because uh, the previous summer, um, August of 1965, Mark had gone to see the uh, Beatles at uh, Metropolitan Stadium. Oh, my. Uh, he and some buddies drove down from Duluth. And uh, I can still feel the 
bitter disappointment of not being able to go with him to, <laughs> to see the Beatles. I mean, for the rest of my life, for all these years, that may be one of the biggest disappointments that, that, that I'll ever have. You know, the one chance in my life to see the Beatles, and it kind of slipped through my fingers. But the Beach Boy, if the Beatles were one, Beach Boys were 1A yeah. in my life yeah. at that time. And uh, the Duluth Arena had just opened up that summer. In fact, this was the first concert they had there. Uh, my dad was an architect in Duluth, and he worked on the uh, the plan to build the uh, the arena along with uh, several other architectural firms. But the, this was this was a huge event in in uh, uh, the devel development of Duluth because before that, um, acts and and even uh, you know big hockey games, UMD, any any big event was. Uh, generally either at the Duluth Armory or the Duluth Curling Club, mm -hmm. both of which were really um, outmoded for, yeah. for the, uh, the purposes. And so when the Duluth Arena opened, they really wanted to do something big. They wanted to have a big splash, and so they, uh, they brought the Beach Boys in. Well, 66, they would have been red hot, right? Uh, they, <laughs> the best way to describe the Beach Boys at that point is that they had just released Pet Sounds, which is the best album they ever made one of the best albums anybody ever made and yet it really wasn't that commercially successful at the time their peak was probably 64 and 65 and by 66 brian wilson wasn't touring with them anymore he had basically pulled off of the road in uh, late 64 to start concentrating on on writing and recording and of course that led to pet sounds which is just a phenomenal uh, record but uh, it also meant that they needed to find a replacement for him on the road. And for most of 64 and 65, they had Glenn Campbell uh, touring, playing bass and singing Brian Wilson's high parts. But by the time they came to Duluth in 66, um, Bruce Johnston had been recruited as a full-time Beach Boy uh, to replace Brian on the road. So uh, it was those five. It was Mike Love, Bruce Johnston, Carl, and Dennis Wilson, um, and Al Jardine and Al Jardine. Yeah. You know, you always forget the, yeah. <laughs> the fourth or the fifth. Uh, but yeah, those, those are the five who played there. Um, and as I said, you can find out almost anything online these days. So, uh, um, I was looking at a website of all of the beach boys performances, uh, well, uh, for the for their total history, but, uh, specifically for the summer of 1966 and they didn't have a set list for the Duluth concert, but they did for uh, a, a concert that they'd played a day or two earlier in uh, South Dakota. And the first song they played was uh, Do You Want to Dance? Do you remember that? Yeah, oh, I, I, I certainly remember the song. But the reason I had to look it up is that I really have no memory at all of what the set list was, mm -hmm. what order was. You could you could predict which songs they were going to play. They, sure. did, they did California Girls. They did uh, I Get Around. Um, they did both God Only Knows and Wouldn't It Be Nice off of Pet Sounds. They did. Um, yeah, that was a. They were on the same record, same 45, weren't they? Uh, One yes, was the flip they, side. they were the A and B side. Yeah, that's of, crazy. Of a phenomenal single. Capitalized. Still remember that that 45. And they did um, Sloop John B. Oh, sure. Yeah, with a, yeah. with those phenomenal harmonies that they had. And I just. I, I went with my brother, and uh, we both brought dates, which is also really, really At 14, you yeah, were I, advanced, Rick. Holy I smokes. Had, I, I had never had a date before I was still collecting that. baseball cards. <laughs> so was I. <laughs> um, and, 
you know, it was, uh, it, it was an. Did ex- your brother drive? Was he? Did he have his license yes. at seventeen? Okay. Yeah, he had a, he had his license, so we didn't have to have our parents take. Which is such a common that. theme. Davide and I were talking about that earlier today. It's a common theme when we talk about first concert. Many of them it seems like most of them, the parents dropped them off, and that was before cell phones, and you had mm-hmm. to wait, and you don't know. You know, I mean, it was crazy. Not in Europe. No, not in Europe. Not in Europe. <laughs> You just walked to the concert in your No, we, we have we have a sophisticated uh, uh, public transportation. Oh, of course. <laughs> well, we did have buses in yeah. Duluth, but uh, yeah. you know, I, my brother and I weren't going to take our dates on a bus down to the Yeah, Duluth that's not real arena. romantic, is no, it? it really, well, it wasn't all that romantic anyway. Oh, just you seen the Beach Boys? Yeah. That that was the thrill. I mean, yeah. really, it was. I'm I, sure you don't remember what you paid for the ticket. Uh, I have no idea, but I know a year earlier um, when the Beatles played here, I believe it was six fifty for a ticket, and I can't imagine that it was much more than six bucks to see the Beach Boys. Yeah, which probably seemed like an awful lot. Yeah, well, that was all I could spend. Was there an opening act? Uh, not that I remember. Yeah, probably. And, and I'm almost sure there was. I know that at the time the Beach Boys were doing some shows with uh, the Love and Spoonful. But I didn't see them until the following year. Mm-hmm. That, uh, the, the arena brought in some great acts. They brought in uh, the Love and Spoonful, which I did see. They were phenomenal. The Cry and Shames, I saw them, and uh, they were great. I did miss a, a terrific show there, though, and I'm still kicking myself over it. It was... Uh, Not Elvis. No. Well, I I passed up Elvis in Duluth uh, later on. When he came in in the early 70s. Yeah. He did back-to-back years, 74 and 5, or 75 and 76, I think. And I've always loved Elvis, but the problem was, you know, I'd, I'd seen clips of him in concert, and he was now weighing something like 250 pounds and, you know, popping the seams on on these garish jumpsuits that he was wearing. And honestly, I made this made the decision, I do not want to see Elvis this way. I, I wanted to remember him. Uh, the way he was back in the late 50s, uh, uh, his comeback special in 68, he was great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the fat Las Vegas Elvis, I just, I didn't want to see it. Interesting, because Eric Eskel's brother George worked security at that concert. I know, I, and, I know George. Yeah, and, so, and sold a, a used handkerchief for uh, enough money, like triple what he made that night. Mm-hmm. But he had no idea if Elvis actually used it. But he said somebody wanted it, so I sold it. It's a great story. Rick Shefchick is with us. Um, we're going to talk about his book and some other concerts, and he's also a musician. It's kind of funny because you mentioned um, um, Love and Spoonful, and I read Mick Fleetwood's book not long ago, and he was talking about the Love and Spoonful, and you said they were fantastic, and they were had a record show. I, th- I don't know, it was in, uh, all the record producers had rented a castle in Ireland or somewhere, and they were, so it was all the big British stars, and the band that entertained them that night was Love and Spoonful, and they thought, are you kidding me? We got, you know, we got... Uh, everybody here on the on the, from the British invasion, and we get the Love and Spoonful. And he said when they got done, he was shaking his head at how good uh, John Sebastian Love and Spoonful were. He just was praising them up and down. He said when the show started, he didn't feel that way, as well, I recall in the book. And I just uh, read something uh, the other day where Paul McCartney was talking about some of the inspiration for the songs on Revolver, which I consider to be right there. Another with one, Pet, Pet yeah. Sounds is one of the greatest albums ever. And uh, he's, he mentioned specifically that the song Good Day Sunshine off of Revolver was inspired directly by the Love and Spoonful. Wow. Probably the song Daydream would be the one that inspired Good Day Sunshine. They both have that sort of bouncy, you know, 
happy little lilt to them. But but that to me indicated that uh, um, you know American groups that you wouldn't even have thought of uh, had a huge influence on uh, some of the biggest British bands. Yeah, it's it is amazing. Hey, uh, Mike, uh, we're going to talk about Michael Brindisi and everybody at the Chanhassen DT.com here in a second. I do want to remind you that uh, Rick Shefchek is our guest. And again, uh, he has a brand new book out that we're going to talk about here in just a minute about Blood on the Tracks, which is talking about classic albums, the Bob Dylan album, uh, considered one of the best maybe from Dylan's collection, which uh, which is a mouthful. But I don't know if at the time they thought it was, but now you look back on it, and it's one of the best. And it's got some great Minnesota connections. More on that, though, in just a minute. Hey, uh, I do want to remind you to get out to the uh, Chan Hassan. We were talking with Michael Brindisi about this very show, uh, Jersey Boys. It's still there out on the CDT's main stage. And obviously, it's a popular show, or it wouldn't still be around. And it's filling up every night. Uh, reviews were stellar as soon as it started. They continue to be great. And you can go check those out yourself. Uh, but I, everything I've seen is just a rave review about this. And I've and I brought this up before that... Michael, raised, born and raised in Philadelphia, and of course he's been the uh, creative director out at the Chan Hassan for many, many years now, and chances are you've seen his productions. Of course, he was on the stage himself at one time out east, but growing up in Philadelphia, he was one of these guys that sang in the shadows of the of the street lamps, uh, the acapella stuff, and that's kind of the, when you see the Jersey Boys, that's kind of where it all started for them, so... Uh, to say he has a passion for this show is an understatement. It's really good. It's still out there. And then uh, Chan Hassan has that wonderful concert stage where they have so many local musicians from the Twin Cities area that are so talented and bring on some great shows. And so what I would say is go to ChanHassanDT.com. And I wouldn't tell you to do that if I hadn't been out there myself multiple times. But the shows are fantastic. You'll see the whole list of them, a lot of tribute uh, bands as well. A lot of originals. It's great. And you just go to ChanHassonDT.com. But get those tickets for Jersey Boys because you're going to like that a lot. I'm telling you. ChanHassonDT.com is where you go on the website. Rick Shefchick is with us. We're on uh, my first concert and hearing all about Rick's with the Beach Boys back in Duluth in 66. Hey, uh, Rick, before I go into more concerts, which I want to do, but Minnesota has great connections with another album, that is considered one of the best that Dylan ever did, and which would make it one of the best ever recorded, perhaps. But it's got great Minnesota connections. Tell me about this book that you've been working on and is now available and has been getting rave reviews. You are Electric Fetus, and and the books were almost gone by the time you showed up. <laughs> well, I, I co-wrote Blood in the Tracks with uh, Paul Metza, and, uh, and Paul was the one who uh, initiated this idea. Uh, he had interviewed all of the six musicians from Minnesota who were brought in to re-record half of the Blood on the Tracks album back in 1974. And uh, at, at the time that he did these interviews, uh, actually earlier, uh, some of them were, were done before Blood, uh, More Blood, More Tracks was released. That's a six-CD set of every existing take uh, both from the New York sessions and the uh, Minneapolis sessions that uh, went into the album Blood on the Tracks. Um, and some of the other interviews were conducted after that uh, box set came out. The significance of that is um, the six musicians from Minnesota did not get credit for their work on the album. Uh, their names never appeared on the CD. And uh, if you buy the single CD of Blood on the Tracks, their names still aren't there. But at least they finally got official credit from Columbia on this six CD set. So uh, Paul had all of these uh, interviews with the musicians, both before they got credit and after they got credit. 
And uh, it, it made for a, a real good bunch of stories. And Paul was trying to figure out what to do with it and uh, ran into uh, a friend of his, the uh, literary agent, Michael Croy. And uh, Michael thought that uh, there was a definite possibility for a book, and but he thought Paul might uh, benefit from having a co-author. So uh, I was spending the winter in Phoenix a couple of years ago, and Paul gives me a call and says, would you like to get on board with this? And uh, at first I thought, well, you know, a lot of this information is already out there. Uh, Kevin Odegaard, who played guitar on the session, uh, had written a book called A Simple Twist of Fate. And it was about the recording sessions uh, in Minneapolis at the Sound 80 studio. And I'd read it and I thought it was terrific. But what the book didn't really cover was uh, biographies of the six musicians. Uh, really didn't go very much into depth as to what their... Uh, professional background had been uh, why they ended up getting chosen to be on this on uh, these two nights of sessions and then what happened to their lives afterwards you know did recording with Bob Dylan change their lives did it improve their lives uh, you know where'd they go what happened to them and I thought well there's a lot of meat there that I would really enjoy getting into so I told Paul yeah let's let's go ahead and do this um, and so I spent uh, over a year uh, researching and uh, re-interviewing the musicians. Unfortunately, two of them died right after we started doing the book. Uh, Chris Weber and Peter Ostrushko, uh, I think, died within six weeks of each other. Mm. Um, so, but fortunately, we had Paul's transcripts, and he'd interviewed both of them a couple of times. So uh, between that and re-interviewing the other four who were still surviving, uh, you know, I think we came up with a really good narrative of both what it was like to record with Bob Dylan, but also we contrast um, this idea that uh, that by re-recording songs that had been laid down in a New York studio with New York studio professionals, that somehow or another, uh, the five songs that came out of Minnesota were inferior in some ways. There, there is an industry and even a critical thought that um, the original version of Blood on the Tracks would have been better if they'd left it untouched. Um, I disagree with that. Paul disagreed with that. Um, and there are a number of uh, critics who have listened to the album over the years and come to the conclusion that uh, that it's a much better album because these five songs got re-recorded in Minneapolis. And we make a very strong case for the fact that these, these musicians may have been anonymous to people outside of the Twin Cities, but their professional backgrounds uh, and training uh, were every bit as good as the musicians that Bob Dylan used in New York City. And, uh, and the rapport and the camaraderie that he had with Minnesota musicians is, is palpable on the record. Uh, the, the sessions went much more smoothly. Um, he had clearly a better connection um, and working relationship with the, uh, with the local guys. Uh, so not only was their professionalism uh, first rate, but it was that little extra DNA that we call it that he shared with these Minnesota guys that I think really pushed the record over the top. What made him choose these Minnesota guys? Well, in each case, it's sort of different, but he was persuaded by his brother, David Zimmerman. Um, who, who lives here, right? Who, yes. He's, he's lived in, uh, in the Twin Cities ever since coming down from Hibbing back in the late 60s. Uh, and David was working with, with a, a number of musicians, more or less as a producer, agent, mm -hmm. promoter, um, including Kevin Odegaard. And when 
when uh, David listened to the uh, acetate of the New York album, the New York version of Blood on the Tracks, uh, his feeling was that it, it was really good and that critics would like it and it would get some FM airplay, but there wasn't a hit on it. It wasn't going to get Bob back on the radio the way he had been in the mid-60s. And at this point in his career, uh, that's something Bob Dylan wanted again. He had intentionally sort of pushed his audience away back in the late 60s when he had more or less dropped out of the music scene. He was raising a family, didn't really want to be involved in the uh, in the hustle and bustle of the music scene. And he was very tired of being called the voice of his generation. He just mm -hmm. wanted to distance himself from all of that. But by the uh, uh, by 74, he'd come to miss the the acclaim, the attention. And he was writing great songs and had decided, you know, it's time for me to really get back in with both feet. And and David thought it, it was a record that had a chance to do that, too, but that uh, some of the songs really needed punching up. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, and so what David did was contact Kevin Odegaard, who he was working with at the time, and asked him to help him recruit some musicians to come in. Now, Kevin had been working in bands in the Twin Cities, and, and uh, he, he suggested... Uh, a drummer and a bass player that he'd played with a lot. But uh, David said, no, we're going to stick with the Sound 80 uh, rhythm section. These guys do almost everything that comes out of here. And that was Billy Peterson on bass and Bill Berg on drums. Um, you could not find two more consummate professional musicians back then. And again, uh, maybe they didn't know who these guys were in New York, but there wasn't anybody who was better than these two. So uh, Kevin said, OK, how about keyboards? And he said, yeah, we could probably use a keyboard. So he uh, asked Greg Inhofer to come in and play. And they weren't told it was a Bob Dylan session. They really? just thought it was maybe going to be a jingle uh, recording session. Sure, because they were doing a lot of those at the time, as you mentioned. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were just pumping out that kind of stuff uh, out of... Um, um, out of, sound, out of yeah, sound we were chatting with Mary Jane Alma day that she she sang a lot of jingles back in the oh, day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if if you've heard of them, um, because they were in a band back in the era, chances are you also heard them playing on a commercial somewhere, but you just didn't know it was right. Them. Uh, so uh, the band was pretty much uh, put together then, but. Um, they on the second night of the session after the first night went so well bob decided we're going to do a couple more songs here um he he had a feeling like he would like to have a, some sort of a stringed instrument he wasn't sure exactly what he wanted uh but chris weber well i should backtrack and say chris weber was at the session as an extra guitarist because Bob Dylan was looking for a uh, what they call a Joan Baez model of a, of a smaller Martin guitar that records very well. Bob had had one, but it was stolen that summer. Mm. And he'd, he'd written all the songs on that guitar, so he wanted a replacement when he was uh, making this record. And uh, so that's what David uh, Zimmerman asked Kevin Odegaard to do. He said, help me find this guitar. So he called the Podium Guitar Store in Dinkytown, knowing that Chris Weber would likely have something similar, and Chris did. But he said, um, it's on consignment, and I can't just let you have it. I have to bring it with me to this session. And at this point, Chris had pretty much figured out it was going to be a Bob Dylan session. <laughs> <laughs> Good thinking. So uh, Kevin had to go back to Dave and said, he, he has a guitar, but he won't let us use it unless he comes. And David reluctantly said, all right, he can come. And and then when uh, when he sat down with Bob Dylan to play the guitar for him just to sort of demonstrate 
Dylan not only really liked the guitar, but he really liked the way Chris Weber, Weber played. Wow. So he ended up on the session too. So Chris oh. kind of thought maybe that might happen. Yes. He yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but the thing is, yeah. it, it's funny because Chris, um, once he had worked out some of the, the, uh, the chord changes and arrangements with Bob and helped Bob teach the other music, musicians he was on his way back behind the glass in the studio because he had assumed that bob was going to do the guitar playing himself and bob said where are you going and he said well i'm just i'm going to listen if that's okay with you and he said no i need you to play <laughs> <laughs> you know that's a complete digression rick did did that stolen guitar ever turn up anywhere no it it never did hmm. and the one that uh, that bob uh, borrowed from the podium he ended up buying uh, but he subsequently gave it to a friend of his, so he didn't have it all that long. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of musicians, uh, um, you know, they may have favorite instruments, but uh, but on the other hand, um, you go through uh, periods of your life as a songwriter where you have a certain sound in your head and mm -hmm. a certain instrument will fit that sound. But as you move on to, you know, start thinking about other songs in other styles, maybe another instrument starts to... Uh, feel more appropriate than the sure. one that you used on the last album. And I think that's what, what happened with this particular guitar. Well, you're a Martin guy too, aren't you? Yeah, I've had a Martin D35 since, uh, actually since 1974, the same year that Blood on the Tracks was recorded. Crazy. Wow. It's a beautiful instrument. Uh, uh, Kevin Odegaard uh, brought his Martin D28, which is very similar to a D35, 1969 model. And he played it on tangled up in blue and it's the only song kevin played on but he was so proud of that moment and it sounded so great i mean you if you listen to the uh, um the kind of cleaned up version of tangled up in blue that's on this box set um you can very clearly hear the the riff that kevin is playing um and kevin donated that guitar to the bob dylan center in tulsa oklahoma oh, he so did. It's, it's now under glass there oh my did <laughs> Did they know that Tangled Up in Blue was going to be a big hit? Uh, no. Um, that's okay. Hold that thought. Okay. I'm going to come back because because <laughs> right. that's a good story. It's a, and it's a, a, a iconic song, especially here, you know, in Minnesota. It's just it's it and it was turned into just a a maybe, great song. And maybe it's it's answering my question I had. Well, we're going to find out that is too in a minute, Davide, and I'm anxious to hear that. I do want to say thank you to Star Bank. Uh, .net for being one of our great sponsors on these uh, podcasts for these last couple of years. Uh, they, they are our bank here at TalkNorth.com, where you can load up on a lot of great podcasts, by the way. But uh, their turnaround time on a loan over at Star Bank is really second to none. It's a, it's, it's a bank that started in rural Minnesota, and it since has expanded here all over the state, including in the metro. So they serve really any kind of need. I don't know what you need to do. To get, but just submit your documentation and apply for the loan and find out how fast things go. A home equity loan, a line of credit, maybe home mortgage, business loan, ag equipment, which is kind of how they started out. Uh, whatever it is, camper, you're going to do the RV pretty soon. They handle everything, but just uh, get your loan needs met over there at Star Bank. Now, the cool thing about them is I've said this so many times when you call over there, they actually answer the phone and it might catch you off guard that somebody's actually talking to you and not sending you to press five for this or six for that, which none of us like. But uh, when you go into the bank, you get to know them. They're really local people. And the funny part is that they get to know you. It's not so funny. It's just cool. But, I mean, in this day and age, uh, that personal touch, I guess you'd call it old-fashioned. You want high-tech? They have all of that. You want to do it on your phone? I get it. You, you got the app there. That's not an issue, obviously. 
but there's really something refreshing about going in here and, and getting that small town feel in a big city and in small towns around Minnesota. Star Bank, they're very good at what they do. They've been around a long time and still owned, family owned, by the way. Loans are subject to a loan application approval. Starbank.net member FDIC and equal housing lender and nice people. Okay, Rick, Chef Chick, uh, let's get back to some of these things we're talking about. By the way, and Davide, I know you have a question here. <laughs> Blood on the Tracks. We talked about Pet Sounds being one of the all-time best albums, and that's not just you saying it. That is uh, a Billboard. That is Rolling Stone, all these lists. Mm -hmm. Blood on the Tracks, one of the best all-time? Well, if you take the consensus of uh, the Rolling Stone latest poll, um, it ranks number nine. It, wow. Of all of the albums. Think about that. All, uh, all rock albums ever recorded, they, they put it at number nine. And that's ahead of any of his other albums. Personally, um, I would rank uh, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, mm -hmm. and probably... Well, I could also throw in Blonde on Blonde and Another Side of Bob Dylan. Those, to me, are the absolute core of what makes him um, a phenomenon. You know what's crazy? Growing up, one of the albums, uh, the first time I ever heard him was when my brothers uh, you know, went off to Vietnam. And I'm home when they left the Bob Dylan Greatest Hits album on their stereo, which then I first listened to. But one of my favorite Dylan albums, and I'm sure I'm... There aren't, aren't a lot of people, and maybe this is one of their favorites, but Nashville Skyline just blew me out of the water when it came out. I don't think it had great reviews initially, as I recall, but I remember buying it going, oh, this is, I love that. And that was really something different. But I'm I'm getting off course here. Davide, get back here now. What was that question you wanted to ask? Well, we were talking about Tangled in Blue. If it, if it was a hit or not, mm -hmm. but it became a hit because it was recorded here in, in Minneapolis. I completely agree with that. And I, I think I haven't heard the takes that they did in New York. But my question to you, have you have you heard those takes? Or? Yeah, yes. And in fact, uh, when we did our signing at the Electric Fetus uh, on Saturday, I brought my acoustic guitar with me and it was already tuned to open D tuning, which... Bob Dylan used to write all 10 songs on Blood on the Tracks. And the reason I brought it, I, I really wasn't going to perform uh, because we, we had Greg Inhofer there on keyboards and uh, Paul Metza played and uh, harpist uh, Sonny Earl. And they were great. They didn't need me. But I brought the guitar to demonstrate what Tangled Up in Blue sounded like before they re-recorded it here in the Twin Cities. It was in open detuning. And it had a, a much mellower, folkier sound to it. Uh, and that was uh, what uh, Kevin Odegaard noticed when Dylan did a quick run-through of the song here in Minneapolis. That was the second night of the sessions. And I don't know that, I don't know that Dylan came to town with the idea of rewriting that song. I think as you, as you look back... Um, that album is full of really, really good songs, but I think Tangled Up in Blue pretty clearly had the potential to be the breakout hit out of, off of that album. But when Dylan played it for the Minnesota musicians at Sound 80, um, he, di he did a 
quick intro. I don't know if he finished the whole thing. They don't have uh, a tape of it, but um, he turned to uh, Kevin Odegaard, who was sitting next to him on a chair with his guitar, and he said, well, what, did you, what do you think of that? And Kevin said, it's passable. And as soon as he said that, he, he thought, oh, my God, I've just blown my chance to play with Bob Dylan. I'm going to be escorted out of the studio. Yeah. Um, my, no room for honesty here. Exactly. Yeah. You don't say that to, you know, somebody who may be the greatest songwriter of our lifetime. But, but Dylan said, looked at him and said, what do you mean, passable? <laughs> And so, and, I can imagine that moment when he asked him that. Uh, yeah, he said he was just sweating bullets, but he, <laughs> but he said, I, "I'm going to stick with my opinion here." And what he meant by that was it 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 was in a a, a folk key. He was it, it was being played in the key of G, which to Kevin was something that you play country music and folk in. But he said, if we raise it a full step to an A. Um, your voice is going to go up a little higher. The band is going to be playing in a key that all of a sudden now is a little bit more of a rock and roll key. Um, it, it'll inject a little more life and maybe a little more urgency into the song. I don't know if he used all of those words, but that's what Kevin was thinking. And he managed to um, persuade Dylan to at least give it a shot. And so Dylan thought for a second and said, all right, let's, let's give it a try. So they raised the key a full step, and uh, Dylan said, yeah, I like that. Let's do it. And so they turned the tape on. They did the six-minute version of Tangled Up in Blue in one take, and when they were done, they knew they had it. Uh, Kevin said it was like we were all three feet off of the ground when the, when the tape ended, and uh, there was just silence in the studio for about five seconds. And every one of the Minnesota musicians in interviews afterwards said that was the moment that they knew that they had done something really significant. In the research for the book, tough question for an author, I think, but um, what's the most surprising thing you uncovered? Well, this On blood in the tracks. Yeah, well, this is minutiae, I guess, in a way. Um, but so much of, you know, what we were writing about was, was known, uh, to some people, but what, what I didn't know, and I don't think anybody really knew was that it was a closed session. There was no photography, no phone calls. It was, uh, absolutely top, top secret. And yet we found out that there was three people who were at that session that I never knew were there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Becky Reamer Thompson, who was a good friend of Peter Ostrusko, snuck in and actually heard uh, um, him start to, I don't know if she actually was there long enough to, to hear a full take of, uh, uh, of the song that uh, Peter played on, but Dave Zimmerman knew Becky and happened to see her, you know, kind of skulking in the uh, control booth and he said, Becky, what are you doing here? <laughs> and she said, well, I, I, I just wanted to see Peter play. And he said, well, you've seen him play. Now get out. <laughs> and, uh, and Peter Ostrushko himself brought a friend of his, uh, or actually the other way around. Um, Peter Ostrushko, the uh, uh, absolute uh, um, master uh, um, mandolinist, Got a call from uh, from Chris Weber. No, actually, he got a call from Jim Tordoff, a banjo player uh, who he'd played many, many gigs with on the West Bank. 
uh, and Tordoff worked at the podium and uh, Chris Weber had called the second night saying Dylan is looking for an extra stringed instrument. Uh, why don't you and, uh, and Peter Ostrushko come over? Um, so Tordoff calls up Peter Ostrushko at uh, the 400 bar because he was playing pinball there and Peter knew or uh, Tordoff knew that's where to find him. And they drove over to the studio in time to, uh, they're actually shutting the lights down, but they did one last song, um, If You See Her Say Hello. And uh, um, they bring their instruments in, and Dylan said, what did you guys bring? Tordoff says, well, I brought a banjo. And Bob said, well, I don't hear a banjo on this. How about you? And uh, Ostrushko says, I brought a mandolin. He said, perfect, that's what we need here. So Ostrushko plays the uh, mandolin part, and uh, Dylan, after they're through, he said, uh, that was great. Now, can you do a little fill on this that sounds like birds flying up to the sky? And uh, Peter tried three or four different ways. And Dylan said, no, that's not what I'm thinking. Do you mind if I play it? And so he gives Dylan his mandolin. And Dylan overdubbed a perfect mandolin part on it. And they were done. That was the end of the session. So now we got Jim Tordoff there, which I don't think anybody knew. Uh, Becky Reamer Thompson was there. And also uh, Kevin Odegaard's girlfriend, Nancy Bunt, uh, drove him to the session, but she was not allowed to stay. But so anyway, here's all these these extra people who had little pieces of experience at this session that supposedly uh, no one else, uh, you know, <laughs> was even allowed to get close to. And and one other thing that that surprised me, and again, this is really minutia, but uh, uh, Bill Berg grew up in Hibbing. Um, and I didn't know that he was the drummer in a jazz trio with David Zimmerman. And they used to practice at Bob Dylan's house. But they were four years younger than Bob. And Bob had already moved on by the time Bill Berg started doing that. So he never did meet Bob until that session started. But he knew David quite well. Um, and I also found out that Bill Berg was the drummer on one of my favorite 60s rock songs from uh, um, uh, from Minnesota, Uh a song, and and now I'm blanking on it because I'm confusing it with 80 Foot Wave by the Vaqueros. Oh, yeah, it was uh, Moving Out by Little John and the Sherwood Men. It was a surf song recorded by a rock band from Hibbing in 1963 with Bill Berg on drums, and I never knew that. So all kinds of fun yeah, things nuggets. Kind of popped out of this. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Rick Shafchik is with us. As a matter of fact, he's written a book about the 60s music. That was also a big hit. Uh, the book itself, I will ask you about that as well. Plus, we at this point, we haven't even gone to the concerts you've been to through the years. So i got to do that. <laughs> hey, uh, more with Rick in just a minute. Uh, and again, you can get these uh, uh, podcasts on Apple, Spotify, TalkNorth.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and download because the guests have been fascinating. And another one right here, an example, and Rick Shefchik, the great author. Uh, today as well. Hey, I, I want to say thank you to all the folks at the Minnesota Propane Association, and they want to say thank you for just being aware of the things that they're doing now, and one of those might be uh, if your preparation for power outages at your home or business. You know, we had some storms move through this past summer that have knocked power out, which is frustrating, and the North American uh, Electric Reliability Corporation has issued that's highest alert ever. The Minnesota Propane Association wants you to know that installing a propane generator going to give you peace of mind when that power goes out, as it has. Also, the same propane that powers that generator can also power all the major appliances in your home with on-site stored energy, which is independent of the much-talked-about grid, which is very, very nice. Installing propane appliances instead of electric appliance in your home or business will also reduce the size and cost of a generator as well. So imagine running all of those gas appliances 
at one time versus picking and choosing which electric ones to run during a power outage. It's reliable, it's affordable, it's safe. It's called propane, as you know. It's the energy for everyone. But what you might not know are all the great details of this. And it's timing when we talk about climate and everything else. It's, it's a perfect time to find out what they can do with propane. And find out more about generators and propane appliances by going simply to propane.com. Rick Shefchik is with us. Uh, hey, Rick, where's the book available, by the way? Blood in the Tracks. Uh... I can't think of any place it isn't available. Okay, you good. Know, all of the uh, all the bookstores around town, um, it's available on Amazon. Um, um, I I got a few in my car. You know, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have if, those. If you if you want it, you don't have to look very far to find it. <laughs> That's a good part. Uh, going back quickly to Blood on the Tracks, is Tangled Up in Blue autobiographical by Dylan, or I? I there are there are um, moments in there that certainly must be autobiographical, but the well, for one thing, he has changed the lyrics of that song uh, possibly a dozen times in uh, in his later concert performances of it. Hmm. In fact, there are you go on YouTube and you look it up, and there will be specific versions of Tangled Up in Blue based on. Uh, the concert that he played it, and Dylan fans will know. Oh well, that's the uh, that's the Stockholm version, or that's the Denver version, or that's uh, you know the uh, San Diego version. You know, I I'm just pulling those names off the top I know, of my head, but, but I love that idea. So the, the lyrics are almost constantly changing, mm -hmm. uh, and even the original version that appears on uh, Blood on the Tracks shifts perspective uh from both first person to third person in the middle of the song so you're never even quite sure if this is uh somebody singing about his own experience or singing about somebody else's experience uh and he did that intentionally because he was working with a painter uh i think his name was Nor norm norman rabine uh in new york city back uh in the spring of 1974 and he was dylan was still struggling to recapture his songwriting um, uh, gift, I, I think is probably the best way of putting it, because he used to write songs, as he said, unconsciously, that they would just come to him. And he was trying to learn how to do consciously what he used to be able to do unconsciously. Somehow or another in the late 60s, that sort of had slipped away from him and he wasn't writing the same way. Uh, but the, uh, his painting teacher taught him to look at things from different perspectives, not just your own, but try to imagine from somebody else's perspective. So Tangled Up in Blue kind of represents that change of perspective that he had learned from painting and now was putting into his songwriting. So was it autobiographical? Some of the, uh, some of the lines clearly are. Some of them obviously are not. And he was just mixing up the medicine, as, uh, as he said in one song. Changing subjects. Sure. You've been to a lot of concerts through the years. Mm -hmm. What's the most memorable for you as as uh, an observer, not as a musician or a yeah. writer, but as an observer? Well, the first one I always think of was uh, I got to see Graham Parsons mm. and, and Emmylou Harris oh, in, together. in New York City. Oh, wow. Uh, in the spring of 1973. And um, he died young. He, he died later that year. Wow. Um, I had become a huge fan of his uh, listening to uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers albums. And... Actually, they did I, a great version of White Line Fever, which is a Merle Haggard song. Oh, it's yeah. still one of my favorites. 
I don't, th- you know, uh, Graham Parsons was not on their recording of it, but they were doing it as a concert uh, number for uh, quite a while before he left the band. Uh, and the first time I would have heard of him was on uh, the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album that the Birds recorded because he was on, he was in the Birds for that one album and pushed them entirely into the country western field. Uh, and the Birds never really moved away from that, even though that was the one album that he recorded with them. Then he and Chris Hillman left to form the uh, Flying Burrito Brothers. And uh, Bernie Ledden was in that group, too, before joining the Eagles. Oh, gosh. Yeah, um, I did it, not. I don't think I knew that. It, 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 an amazing band. Um, they did two albums. Is Bernie Ma- from up in the Duluth area? Uh, not the du- I, I know not he the, performs up there once in a while. Not the Duluth area, but he does have a Minnesota background. Yeah. Uh, um, but in his formative years, he was not living here in Minnesota. Um but uh, uh, I think he's performed up Grand Marais a couple of times. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Anyway, yeah, I think I think you're right. Uh, but he did one album with the Burritos when Graham Parsons was there, and then Parsons left uh, in uh, 1970 to start a uh, solo career. And that's really well. I, uh, Gilded Palace of Sin with the uh, Flying Burrito Brothers and Chris Hillman was one. I think one of the ten best albums ever recorded. Mm. Um, That's powerful. If anybody is interested in hearing the where country rock came from, um, and hearing two guys sing like the Everly Brothers, and uh, and they really know, couldn't get airplay at that. There was no format for no, them, was there? No, at that time, uh, even underground FM probably wasn't. Yeah, wasn't playing them because they weren't psychedelic. You know, they're they were never going to have a hit single on country radio. They played uh, the Grand Ole Opry. Well, with the Birds, they did a country thing at the Grand Ole Opry, and uh, essentially they were told, "You'll never play in this town again." (laughs) (laughs) So, but anyway, he did two solo albums, and after the first one, I, you know, I was actually teaching school in Jersey City as a uh, a sort of a college uh, semester. And uh, he came to. Yeah, you're a Dartmouth. Great. I was a Dartmouth, yes. And uh, I, I took that one winter off to, to uh, go down to Jersey City, and he was playing Max's Kansas City, a small club in uh, in Manhattan, uh, and I I wouldn't have missed that for the world because I was already just so taken with his first solo album, and that's where Emmylou Harris got introduced. Um, I had, I bought it because I love Graham Parsons and all of a sudden here's a bonus. Here's, here's Emmylou Harris who I'd never heard of, never heard sing before. And she's just killing it. So I go to go to see him live and it was just a phenomenal show. Um, you know, whenever I think about the best concerts I've ever seen, that's the one that pops up right away. That's really interesting. Anything unique that you've seen through the years that's, that stands out in that memory bank of yours? Oh boy. Let's see. It's a tough one. Well, um, it's like know, the first time I saw George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. I'm just, I, there's so much going on. I'm just like a little kid. I, I loved every minute of it because I never knew who was coming out and who's going to, it was, God, that was fun. Well, when you say unique, I, I guess I would think of one show that never happened before or after, as far as I know. Uh, I was at Watkins Glen in 1973 when uh, something like six or 700,000 people went to this race, <laughs> racetrack. Mm-hmm. It, it was going to be the, the second uh, Woodstock, but there was only three bands. But the three bands were Grateful Dead opened up uh, for uh, the band and then the Allman Brothers. So the, those three played for probably a total of nine hours, just back to back to oh, back. Oh wow! Um, to this, this monster. And you were there crowd. with the whole thing. I was there for the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Wow! Just an incredible day. <laughs> uh, and 
all three of these bands, I would say, were really at the absolute peak of their uh, of uh, of their skills and uh, and their appeal. So, uh, yeah, that that's something that'll never happen again. No, yeah, uh, uh, nine hours, and then to stay as a fan. Did everybody stay that long? Yes, I mean, yeah, wow. You couldn't get out. <laughs> well, there's the issue. Once you got there, you had to wait for everybody to leave. But it wasn't was, raining like Woodstock. No, it did rain during the band set. Huh? Uh, and um, there's a, there's an actual recording of uh, Garth Hudson playing um, like a 10-minute improvisational piece as it's raining. And I think they've called it While It Rains or something like that. And uh, um, so, yeah, we had to sort of sit out for a little while waiting for the rain to break, but the band still played a little bit of music and then they resumed their show. Hmm. Man, that is, that's a memory maker. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with Rick Chef Chick, uh, and we've got a couple other things that I want to bring up, probably more than a couple other things. Davide, you jump in whenever you want, because I see you're kind of focused on our guest here. I knew you would be. Rick, as a great author, was a newspaper writer for a while, as I mentioned, a Dartmouth grad, and uh, continues to write. There's some other books, too, that he's written as well. Yeah. Maybe we can reveal that on a part two. I think we need a part two with this we guy. We do. Um, okay, well... Before we get to part two, we're going to come back here on part one, and I'm going to really put you on the spot, and I want you to think about this. If you could book a concert, well, you're booking the concert, whatever venue it is. You can pick the venue. you got to pick three, three acts. I want you, I'm going to give you some time to think about that. So there in... And uh, may not be enough time, but uh, but I, I got to believe that you'll come up with something here for sure. I know who's come up with something for you, and that is our friends over at Aquarius Home Services. Gosh, Jeff and his crew are there just really good. And it's not just me saying that. You can see that in the ratings and the reviews. And uh, they just won another uh, award from the Star Tribune for their what they do uh, for their clients. And that's you, and that's me. I'm one of them. Aquarius Home Services got the fall blowout sale coming up. That's going to end pretty quick here. So I would dive into this amazing 25% discount on a complete whole home heating and cooling system or a whole home Connecticut water treatment system. I've done both. So whether it's upgrading your old furnace and air conditioner or elevating your home's water quality, which I think is, I mean, you think about all the things you do to your home, your water quality better be the best thing you have going because you're going to use it every day, no matter whether you want to or not, you have to. And they really clean it up. And you read about these stories in the newspaper about water issues. They're ready for your call to talk you through all of these things. Aquarius is is really your answer. So whether it's city-based uh, or from a well, uh, they have solutions. And if you've been toying with the idea of upgrading your heating and cooling system, I wouldn't wait. Uh, I would grab this one-time offer before Minnesota's relentless winter decides to hit us. And you know how that goes. Their high-efficiency furnaces can bring not just the premium comfort that you want, but also uh, financial benefits. October 14th is the last chance to get this home upgrade and substantial 25% off savings. So act fast. Man, is this a deal. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended. And you know that if you've had them from experience. And they're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Man, is is today the day to jump on that. Okay, Rick, Chef Chick, uh, you're going to come back for part two, and you might want to delay this for part two when you're back next week. But if you had the venue and you had the three acts, do you have enough time to think about it, or do you need another show? I I I, I did come up, <laughs> yeah. I'll, for a venue, let's do uh, Red Rocks. Oh boy, in Boulder, oh. Colorado. Yep. 
And uh, for a show, now, uh, this is not what you would say are three compatible acts, but just three I'd really like to see. Taylor Swift. Okay, you threw me for a loop on that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't anticipating that. I think she's phenomenal. I think she's absolutely great. She's bigger than the NFL, we just found out. Well, she's the Beatles of this generation. She really is, yeah. I I can't put it any any other way. Uh, I wouldn't want to see her under the current circumstances uh, because, you know, there's just so much going on and the constant din of of her fans. Yeah. But but she's a phenomenal reporter. Uh, performer, I, I would just like to see her maybe in a different setting where it's just not all crazy. Yeah. Um, Bruno Mars, who I think is just as talented as anybody I've seen in the last 20 years, as talented as anybody since Prince. Let's let's put it that Boy, way. Boy, that's a mouthful right there. Yeah, I uh, saw Bruno uh, a few years back now. Must have been a great show. I haven't seen him. He's an entertainer. Yeah. I mean, he. if you want to see an entertainer, it's like people laugh when I see one of my favorite shows of all time is ACDC because they entertain the heck out of the crowd. It was it was more than the songs. They, again, it's like George Clinton. They got all sorts of stuff going on. Okay, I interrupted. I apologize. All right, and I'm going to uh, throw out a, a band that uh, has nothing to do with either of those two. Uh, and I, I don't even think they're together anymore, but they could get back together. NRBQ. Interesting. I, I absolutely loved, loved, loved NRBQ. Uh, every album they did, they had such an, a nice combination of songwriting, singing, uh, Joey Spampanato, uh, 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 Terry, um, uh, last name escaped me, Al Anderson. Uh, just, uh, I love their songwriting, love their singing, I love their arrangements, and they could do lots and lots of different styles of music. Um, and I, I don't think they'll ever play together again, but, uh, uh, that would be a, but, but they can at your mine. concert. They yeah. can at Out my of concert. Red Rocks. Yes. Can I get tickets? <laughs> yes. Yes, you can. Yeah. I mean, you, you suggested it. Yeah. So, uh, oh man, that would be a show. Hey, Rick, uh, great having you on. Do you mind if I keep you a little longer? No. Um, uh, cause I, I told David, I said, I got a feeling this one might turn into two parter. So I really appreciate having you here and we'll talk more with Rick again. If they want to get your book one more time, the new one, blood in the tracks, mm-hmm. um, all your major bookstores, hopefully most of the minor bookstores, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, all of my books are always available on Amazon. Okay. More with Rick. He's coming back next week. And, uh, again, I mentioned the electric fetus cause he had, uh, I think one of the best selling events there, maybe the best selling event recently with uh, the new Dylan uh, book we're talking about. Oh, and the book is available at electric fetus. There's a uh, fetus. There are some signed copies there. That oh, good. Behind. And well, and there's another book you wrote that was, I don't know if that was the number one or number two. I don't know if the Dylan one was number one or two, but you're the, you got the two top spots out there for people coming and buying books. And we're going to talk about that one when we come back next week. Rick, great to see you again. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Dave. It's great being here and uh, nice seeing you again, too. Davide Razzo with us. He is our uh, producer, a sound engineer by 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 day. And it's Davide, it's great to have you with thank you. all of these. I'll see you, sir. And uh, so I'll see you next week. And I want to say thank you again to the folks at Aquarius Home Services, at UCARE, at the Chanhassen Dinner Theaters, uh, starbank.net, and of course, the Minnesota Propane Association. And again, download these wherever you do your uh, podcast, Apple, Spotify, talknorth.com. And get that uh, subscription going. Just subscribe to it. It's that simple, and you won't miss any of these. We're back next week. See you next time on My First Concert.